This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Dragon's Treasure, A Dreamer's Guide to Inner Discovery Through Dream Interpretation. And the author is R.J. Cole, and R.J. joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, R.J. Well, hey, Steve. Well, good to have you with us. We're going to take a journey into our dreams and and the significance of them and also how we can use them. But I want to read the introduction, uh, how you would introduce your book to a friend, and just a a, a short overview. I'm just going to read what you wrote. The Dragon's Treasure is designed to aid in the learning about oneself through the thoughtful analysis of dreams. I look at symbolic meaning of dreams within the context of everyday life and suggest that life itself can be looked as though it were a dream, the waking dream, that can be analyzed much as the sleeping dream for clues to personal behavior, problem-solving, and self-development. Well, that is a obviously a mouthful. Yeah. And uh, a lot to talk about, but let's first of all, before we get into talking about this waking dream and how to analyze it, Okay. why did you write the book? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, Steve, the original you know, idea was to see whether or not I could actually write a book, um, but you know, as I said earlier, uh, I, uh, once I'd had that revelation, then it was, well, what do I write about? And I realized, you know, I've had over 30 years experience of, uh, journalizing my own dreams. Uh, probably have about 3,000 of them that I've written down over the last, uh, 25 years or so. And I also worked with, uh, children in, um, residential and daycare, uh, treatment facilities, kids who had emotional disturbances and, uh, found uh, the use of dreams and how kids, you know, project their emotions and the, you know, their patterns of behavior onto a dream, you know, were quite effective. So, um, so I said, well, let's take a look at that uh, and, uh, and see what, uh, you know, see what I've learned in that particular area. The other thing is, is the society we live in today is, um, in a lot of ways, is, is pretty much ruled by fear. And when I speak about society, I, I, I mean us, you know, the society I live in, uh, the American society. And, um, and it's this fear which is sort of an obstacle or has become an obstacle to both political and social understanding. And one of the things that one can do to get a hold of that fear and to begin to see how one is, is acting out, uh, you know, their fears, is through dreams, is through dream analysis, through uh, accessing, you know, some of your unconscious behavior patterns um, that show up in the dreams. So, you know, those were the reasons that, uh, you know, I, I thought that I had something to contribute in that area. 
Well, you have a section that says 18 steps for becoming a wizard in your universe. Right. And one of the steps, one of these important steps is journal your dreams. Now, so what are you saying to me and to all of us that it's very important to write down what you dream as, soon, as quickly as you can? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if, at first it's kind of difficult to do that because none of us are, have been reinforced to remember our dreams. Um, but there are some, you know, fairly simple techniques for doing that. You know, keep a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil by your bed. Um, you know, consci- be conscious before you fall asleep that, you know, you want to try to remember your dream. Um, you know, if you wake up and you remember only a fragment of the dream, that's fine. Get the fragment down. You know, frequently fragments can have, you know, uh, uh, significant meaning too. Um, but you do it over and over and over again until you build up a behavior pattern of, uh, of journalizing. And um, it's eventually it gets to the point where you have more dreams than you're willing to write down. <laughs> and then you've got to sort of triage a little bit. Um, and, uh, and the book goes into that. It goes into the, the techniques and, and uh, you know, what has worked and not worked for me, uh, that sort of thing. We've all had experiences with dreams that can be so bizarre. Oh, yeah. You know, and you you wake up and you go, what did I just think about? What was I dreaming about? That was the strangest thing. Sometimes you can remember them very clearly, and other times there's just a kind of a faint something that happened, and then you and you knew it was. You maybe can see one picture. Yeah. So how do you take that and and help you, like you say, uh, to help you understand what's going on in your real life? Well, you know, a, a, a fragment, let's say, like you suggested, a you know, a single picture, uh, maybe with an emotion attached to it. Right, especially um, emotion, right? Yeah, especially the emotion. Again, just write it down. Um, that in and of itself may not be of much value, but put it together with several nights worth of those, and uh, you might begin to see a pattern. Um, so th- that's what I do is, is I just, whatever comes up, I put down. Um, if there's enough to work with, I work with it. Uh, if there isn't, I just wait until I've got enough to work with. Um, mine are usually at this stage of the game, after 25, 30 years of this, um, are usually pretty clear and pretty detailed and have a beginning, middle, and an end. It's almost like a book, you know, that shows up in the dream. But, um, even fragments, even one word or one picture fragment, attached to a feeling can be useful. Um, you can take the feeling, you can take the fragment, you can, you know, see what that symbolizes, um, what, the, what, the, what the picture symbolizes. Um, and, uh, and then take a look at it, okay, is there some place in your life that uh, you're feeling what you're feeling in the dream or that you, you know, you have a vision somewhere in your life that you you know, the dream is, is, is pointing to. It's basically all a dream is going to do is just point at something. Um, and, yeah, uh, without going into a whole lot of detail, that's basic. In this list of 18 steps for becoming a wizard in your universe, another one says, let go of your expectations and your need to be right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the need to be right is a killer. Um, <clears throat> I mean, and we all have it. I mean, we're right-making. Um, 
uh, I, as I say in the book, and I've said often to you know some of the students I've worked with, is that that's what we are as right-making machines. I mean, we're even we're, we're even right about saying we're wrong, you know, about something. Uh, we're never wrong in our own <laughs> universe. And sometimes what that can do is that can be a real obstacle to getting what's really going on um, or fully understanding the other person if you're in communication with them or, you know, to get some sense of what's going on around you, you know, the problems that you have. It's a huge obstacle. Um, The expectations is another part of that. Um, You could even say judgments. you, you have an expectation about an event or you have an expectation about a person and that event and person doesn't meet your expectations and that affects, um, that affects what you get out of the event, usually negatively, uh, or get out of the relationship with the person, usually negatively, um, or, or at least it limits what you get. And what I'm suggesting is, is that if you really want to produce magic in your life, uh, let go of those expectations. Um, let go of those judgments. Uh, and you'll be surprised when you're just able to be with the person as they are uh, without your expectations, because they are just yours. Uh, it, it's surprising what you can get out of the relationship and what you can get out of the event. What do you mean by believing in magic? That's one of the 18 steps, and you just mentioned it. Yeah, I... Uh, in the book, I point out what I consider to be magic. Um, and I'm not talking about sleight-of-hand tricks. I'm not talking about Harry Potter-type magic. Um, what I'm talking about is the, the magic. Well, if you can visualize, you know, these huge metal objects that go flying down a runway and then take off and literally leap into the air. I mean, these things weigh thousands of tons and yet they're able to defy gravity and fly through the air. I mean, it's that sense of awe, that sense of magic, when you really get to it. Um, it's, an, it's the kind of thing where you develop a, an intention that something is going to happen, and you, out of that intention, you do a variety of things that are aligned with the intention or with your desire, and they happen. Um, it, it's... Um, that kind of magic, the kind of magic when you are with somebody that you're very close to and you both seem to be able to finish each other's sentences, you both seem to have a, uh, a, a similar thoughts, you know, at the same time. So I'm proposing that, you know, magic is with us all the time. Uh, it's just that we don't label it magic. Uh, that sort of thing. I, I'm also thinking of, I think it's magic when you've got this little, you know, key fob and you, you're able to open your car door, you know, from 20 feet away. Um, I mean, that, that to me is magic. So it's, it's sort of restructuring your, the way you visualize the world to something less mundane and more magical. Help us understand this concept that you call the waking dream. Ah, uh, yes. Um, the waking dream is a concept that's been around a long time, um, and I cite a number of authors who have looked into it at much greater depth than I did. Um, it, but it's there's a Edgar Allan Poe poem that where he asks uh, 
called a dream within a dream, where he asks the question twice, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? And what I'm proposing is that when the dreamer wakes up, you know, from his sleep, the dreaming doesn't stop, that um, it goes into what I call the waking dream. So it's sort of the the logical application of what, you know, Poe was talking about. Um, the, as I said earlier, the patterns that we see in dreams, because dreams do, over time, show patterns of behavior, pure behavior. Um, and those patterns show up in your waking life as well. And you can interpret the patterns in your waking life much as you can the patterns in, you know, your sleeping dream. And you can access the meaning uh, in your waking dream, which is just a way of holding that, uh, from, um, you know, being able to access the unconscious uh, you or the subconscious you in the sleeping dream. Does that make sense? It does. So, um, you know, after a while, and in the book, I also... I write down what my waking dream was. In other words, uh, up to a certain point in my life, the, the point being to, to get some sense of, you know, what, I, what patterns am I creating in my life based upon what I did, uh, you know, throughout my life. Um, it's so that I can take a look at vivid life experience, you know, and find meaning within, within them. I mean, we all have vivid life experiences. We all have events that happen to us, relationships that aren't quite working or don't work at all uh, and break up. And it's uh, what, what meaning is in those other than just the meaning, you know, of the breakup itself or, or the, the unworkability of whatever the relationship is. Well, there's a way of looking at that through the waking dream, through the, you know, the symbolic meanings of the waking dream, similar, if not, you know, the same as the sleeping dream. So it's another, it's another way to look at your life in, in a, you know, through a different uh, set of glasses. Through a different window, a different yeah. paradigm. Yeah, a different paradigm. You, we have enough time, I think, to cover uh, one more subject here. One of the titles of your chapters, one says, The Role of Religion. So talk about that with us. In several sections, I'm pointing out the various things in, um, in our lives. We, we, don't, we don't live our lives... Um, truly separated from everything that's going around us. Uh, the society within which we live, you know, determines a lot about how we see things. Um, it's the, the old I idea that uh, it's not seeing, is believing, but, you know, what you believe is what you see. And what I contend is, is that, you know, religion, and when I'm talking about religion, I'm talking about it as a whole, as an institution, not individual churches, because I've had experience with individual churches that do some amazing transformational things for, for folks. Um, but as a whole, it can be a, uh, an obstacle to you viewing reality as it is. Because if you try to view reality through your belief, um, you can't. All you get is the belief and the colorations that that belief, 
you know, puts into it. I suggest that there is, a, you know, reality beyond just our belief. And so really with religion in that section, I'm taking a look at what in religion or, or and or belief in a religion can serve as obstacles to you uh, seeing reality beyond, you know, what, how you're seeing it now. Um, so it, it's literally the transformational process. The, the process of transforming your experience of reality can't happen until you're willing and able to move outside your beliefs. Um, so basically, that's what that chapter is about. RJ, tell us how to get your book. Well, um, one of the things you can do, I've got a website, and I'll give you that right now, and that's www.thedreamingwizard, all small caps, dot com. And you can order it directly from there. There's also a bit of a summary and a, <coughs> a bit of a recap of kind of things that we've been talking about today in there, too. And, of course, you can get it through iUniverse. You can get it through iUniverse. Uh, you can get it uh, also through Amazon.com and uh, also um, Barnes & Noble, as far as I know, uh, at this particular time. Um, I'd prefer you go through iUniverse.com, but, you know, <laughs> I'm prejudiced. RJ, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Ah, I appreciate it, Steve. It's been a good, uh, it's been a good interview. That was R.J. Cole. He is the author of his book, The Dragon's Treasure, A Dreamer's Guide to Inner Discovery Through Dream Interpretation. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. 
every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pink Slips and Parting Gifts, and the author is Deb Hosey-White, and Deb joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Deb. Hi, how are you today? Good to have you on the show now. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts, this is what you wrote about it, a short overview. You said, mergers and acquisitions have a real human impact. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts is a business novel that takes place at the beginning of the 21st century. It is set inside a Fortune 500 corporation that has been auctioned and sold to a competing company. This is a work of fiction that reflects the economic times of a nation. Then you go on to say one in five corporate employees can testify to the real impact of mergers and acquisitions. Mergers are messy business and they change the lives of everyday people. Everyday people, however, don't headline the merger and acquisition news. So this is real focused, I guess, on the emotional roller coaster that often can accompany these kinds of events, right? That's correct. What happens to the people who aren't making the news that are involved in a merger, but are certainly uh, are affected by it uh, in their everyday lives. So why did you write the book? And first, before you go into that, tell us a little bit about your background. I think it w- that would be interesting to our listeners. Well, I have more than 30 years in human resources and in uh, business management consulting and also in coaching. And so I've had an opportunity over my career to... I experienced the business world from a lot of different perspectives through witnessing uh, many, many stories and events in my career. It's just such wonderful, interesting stories that I felt like I wanted to share those. So we look at different scenarios, different events, or is it more of a a novel about uh, main characters and the corporate world? It is a novel about the corporate world, but there are over 75 characters in the book that we follow. Uh, Some of them make an appearance for less than a page. Some are there at the beginning, some are there still at the end. Uh, It's all in the process of telling the story about the event and then meeting many of the people that are affected by this event, the merger of two large corporations. Now, right at the start of the book, you mentioned about the impact of the game of Monopoly on the corporate world. Give us your view of that. Well, it's a a thought that crossed my mind as I was starting to write this story. And I was thinking about, you know, what is it that motivates a CEO to decide to sell a corporation that's been around for a long time, that might be a household name, that's doing well, that employs lots of thousands of people. What is it? What's that magic moment that, that comes along that makes a CEO say, I think it's time to sell the company? And in thinking about that, it struck me that there is this monopoly mentality that we have in the United States, maybe in the world, that uh, we as children play this game, and then interestingly enough, 
we have a lot of people in the business world who've grown up and are playing it as adults. Now, we're going to look at the Easton Company, correct? That's correct. And this is a fictitious company. It's a developer. It is a Fortune 500 company in the U.S. And it is merging, actually being acquired by one of its competitors, Pratt Miles. And across the street, there's also a social place that plays a big part in the people's lives who work at Easton's? That's correct. And that's where some of my favorite scenes in the book take place. Uh, On this very last day that the Easton Company exists before it disappears from the big board on Wall Street and is acquired by its competitor. And those scenes that are my favorites really revolve around the party that's going on at the bar across the street from Easton's corporate headquarters. Very last day that the company exists, uh, it's a rainy Friday afternoon. The deal is finally sealed. The company is sold. And we have uh, Easton company employees who migrate across the street to the aptly named Darwin's Bar for a final Easton Company blowout. Readers follow several characters in and out of Darwin's during this 10-hour party that's going on. And first we meet Rob and Cindy, who are a married couple. They're both employed as accountants for Easton. And on this last day, when the sale closes, Cindy gets her pink slip, she gets emotional, and then she gets drunk. And her after-hours final visit to the empty Easton headquarters building is both touching and amusing as she recalls some very important events in her life that take place there. Later in the evening, a group of employees exiting Darwin's watches in disbelief as the Easton Company's sign is ripped from the ground by a crane and dropped as though it's just scrap metal into a dump truck just hours after the deal was finalized. And at closing time at Darwin's, we go back inside and meet the anonymously generous individual who's arranged to pick up the $2,300 bar tab for this last great Easton Company bash. And then finally, on this day, we follow another group of employees leaving the bar as they head for a small ceremony that is really of their own making at the grave site of Ed Easton, who is the Easton Company's much-admired late founder. Those are scenes that I really love, and I love the characters that, that uh, populate those scenes. When you describe your book, you ask the question, uh, what's your book about? And you say it's a business workplace novel about the merger of two corporations. And then a answer to that statement sounds awful boring to me. <laughs> uh, give us some insights on how this is much more than just the mechanics and the history of two companies merging. You're really talking about what's happening to people. That's correct. This is definitely a peek behind the curtain, uh, not the stuff that you're reading about on the business page of the New York Times. And so when I, when I jokingly said uh, in, in that description of sounds pretty boring, you know, when you say to somebody, it's, my book is a work of business workplace fiction, it may not sound terribly entertaining. However, 
I have to tell you, I've been told that Pink Slips and Parting Gifts has inspired some readers to drop the book laughing and others to throw the book across the room in anger while shouting some choice words. So, obviously the story has inspired uh, a lot of questions and strong responses from readers. And, and in all honesty, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, we really are looking at characters who are unique but then that's what life is made up of. Very unique people who are reacting to learning that their careers, their jobs, their years of dedication to a particular company uh, are about to go away. And I find that uh, something very interesting to talk about and explore in the book. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's poignant and at the same time can be very entertaining. I guess it's something for everyone to think about because given the economic times we're in, may help us to work through that day when we get the pink slip. Well, I'd hope so. But I also would say I'd hope that uh, uh, not only am I finding readers who are uh, identifying with the employees who uh, are not the decision makers in these mergers, but in some cases that I'm finding readers who are at the top of the food chain, if you will, in these corporations and who maybe will think a little bit more about effects of the decision of merger on their employee populations. Not that it would change the decision to merge, but the, the decisions about packages and benefits and uh, notification, all those things, that all of this, there, there are good and bad ways to handle uh, these human resources issues that come about, and we could do a better job. We certainly spend most of our lives working for one company. Of course, that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but we certainly spend so much time and we get emotionally tied to what we do. So it is a major disruption. It can be. It definitely can be. And, you know, we, we really, interestingly enough, you know, we spend so much of our lives in the workplace as Americans, and yet there is not a lot of workplace fiction out there. There certainly is some, uh, you know, a decade ago we saw novels with Silicon Valley and dot-com settings, and there's always been plenty of government intrigue fiction set in federal offices in and around the nation's capital. And there's other exceptions like Arthur Haley's hotel and airport novels that some uh, listeners may remember. Uh, more recently, Weisberger's The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, but I think that it is unique to have a book that is really set in the workplace and about what's really going on with the people who populate uh, this corporation during uh, a merger in progress. Your book must be very unique. I can't imagine many books written from this point of view. So I've been told. Um, I've had a couple of people who have been very surprised that someone who spent a career in human resources would be interested in uh, writing a book. And my response is, uh, gosh, you know, sometimes we have some of the best stories uh, over a career in human resources. And 
certainly that's also a motivation to uh, indulge in creative writing uh, is the opportunity to, to share some of these, these stories that are sometimes uh, just stranger than fiction and, and too good to be true. Very few books would have a title about Tales of the Sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to tell you, uh, as the book has now been in the marketplace for a bit, it, Tales of the Sofa is uh, a favorite part uh, of the book for all kinds of readers. And uh, it's, it's certainly uh, unique. We, uh, we follow a sofa that starts out as a gift from the, the founder of the Easton Company uh, to the new CEO. Uh, we follow that post-merger uh, as it's discovered in the empty executive suite of the former Easton Company headquarters, and it travels from place to place throughout the building. Uh, the sofa has its own story to tell, I think, uh, about each of its temporary caretakers as it relocates from the CEO's office to human resources to a couple of guys in the IT group and then the maintenance staff break room. And then finally, it lands on the loading dock behind the building, adopted by uh, a man named Don, don't call me Miami Vice Johnson, who is a local homeless man. So yes, and I, I, I've gotten emails from readers who've asked me if the sofa is a metaphor for the post-merger dismantling of, of the Easton Company in the story. And I've replied that... If the reader says it's a metaphor, well, then it's a metaphor. But in reality, sometimes a sofa is just a sofa. It must have been very challenging weaving these 75 characters throughout this story. Were, were other great challenges? I think uh, the most challenging part of writing the book was developing the format for telling the stories I wanted to tell. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts does unfold through a series of vignettes. And the reader moves around the plot and becomes a spectator of the action from many different viewpoints. And that being said, uh, assuring that the reader could follow the storyline uh, effectively was a challenge, and it required quite a lot of editorial skill. Deb, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available from iUniverse. And also online, uh, it's available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Deb Hosey White. She is the author of her book, Pink Slips and Parting Gifts. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on Tugginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? 
published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Quigley Alchemy, and the author is E.J. Russ McDevitt. And Russ joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Russ. Hey, uh, hi. Uh, hi from Canada. Beautiful weather up here. And nice talking to you, especially about my book. Well, good to have you on the show. Now, tell us in, in an overview, what is your book about? Uh, ostensibly, it's an action novel. Um, the hero, the top guy in it, is a, an ex-Special Forces guy in the SAS, that's the Special Air Service in the U.K. It would be the equivalent of your Delta teams over here, or your SEALs. And uh, he's pretty well forced, told by his wife, to get out of the forces because he got left behind in, in Afghanistan on, on a mission. And a week later emerges, and uh, he was lost in, in action. As far as their wife was concerned, he was gone. So when he came back to the UK, she said, that's it. So he gets out, finds it difficult to get work. After all, this guy's a focused killing machine. And eventually uh, he's offered a position selling life insurance. You can believe that. Kind of ironic, yes. <laughs> yeah, ironic. And uh, I think Chapter 12 starts by saying, uh, Danny realizes he has to learn how to sell life insurance or go back to killing people. So I think that focuses the mind wonderfully. Anyway, Steve, it isn't working out for him. Um, it isn't working out for him. He's struggling, and he hears about this girl, C.C. Clive Courtney, a guy who made a lot of money in the business and who disappeared. He decides he'd go and find this guy and pick his brains and learn his secrets. So that's what he does. Do you want me to keep going on this, Wayne? No, that gives us a little bit of a feel for uh, what's going on here. Uh, obviously, a lot of turmoil within Danny, a lot of struggles. Uh, tell us why you wrote the book. Uh, this is a, a very unique kind of uh, plot. Yeah, it is. Um, some years ago, I was uh, training financial services in the U.K. I spent a lot of time in it after I got out of the military. I was in the Canadian military for six years, part of NATO Brigade in Europe, and uh while I was training in the U.K., I met this ex-SAS guy who came into my class, and uh, him and I were together for two weeks there. He struggled a lot. Uh, I studied him. Uh, violence kind of exuded from his skin, almost like sweat. And uh, I thought he could have jumped across the table many a time and tore my throat out. And you could say Danny Quigley, my, my hero, the hero in my book, was born right then because this guy was incredible, no, no post-traumatic stress counseling. He was a guy trying to get into financial services and failing miserably. I helped him all I could, so I understood his mindset, 
and uh, where he was coming from. And because I was ex-military, he kind of unloaded on me, told me a lot of the stories of the actions, projects that were involved in. And you could say that uh, the character stayed in my mind right then. And later on, when I was writing the book, it just had to be about this individual. Now, you have a special dedication for your book. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's to Nada. Now, Nada might ring a bell with your listeners, but uh, two months ago I was watching the demonstrations in Tehran, and uh, I was shocked to see this young, beautiful young lady shot dead by a sniper right there on TV. She was out strolling with her father, not even involved in these demonstrations, and was shot, I think 26 years of age, lying there in the street, dying, and her father on his knees beside her. And I just had this incredible sense of shock and a sense of responsibility just sitting in there. I said, what can I do to kind of make sure she's not forgotten? And uh, I immediately got up, went to my computer, and dedicated the book to her. And I should say, I took my wife's name and my daughter's name off because they had helped me do a lot of editing in the book. And uh, that's where it began. And I was amazed yesterday on CNN see that Oxford University in England have set up a scholarship in honor of NADA. So there is, there's something catching here. There's something happening. And the Iranian government have condemned uh, Oxford University. I hope they condemn my book, too. It'll make it famous. But if she stayed with me, I can tell you, on that, on that night, I, in some way, you'd have to be Irish to understand it, but she really got through to me. I had this sense of, of, of her essence passing into me or something. I can't explain it, but I was determined to do something and that's all I could do. That's all I could think of was to dedicate the book. And I'm delighted I did, and it looks great on the book. Well, let's talk about how the book starts. Uh, what is the timeline? What's the event? Or what's going on in Danny's life? Yeah, okay. It starts with um, a joint uh, SAS Delta mission in Afghanistan. Quite often these guys do t- joint operations. And um, they're going out to this village to... Uh, They've got a hint that the village elder will, will talk to them and uh, start working with them. So a joint SAS Delta team go out there and get ambushed. And when the teams pull out, Danny is inadvertently left behind. He's kind of covering their butts. And uh, he managed, manages to get undercover and creep off. Scientists are hitting back and uh, runs into all sorts of trouble, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and is actually housed by a young 17-year-old Afghan girl. Uh, who shoots somebody who is about to take his head off with a rifle. So he emerges about a week later, um, having killed all sorts of people and all sorts of adventures with this young 17-year-old Afghan girl. When he ends up back in the U.K., his wife says, look, that's it, baby. Uh, you're going to have to get out of the forces. And his young daughter said, Daddy, don't leave me again, please. So that probably touched them more than anything else. So... They had a big discussion. He didn't like getting out. He was good at what he did. He was heading up. His buddies loved him, and, um, you know, he'd been doing it for about eight years. But he got out, and this is where he went into the business of trying to sell life insurance. However, having uh, got into Civvy Street, he thought violence was behind him, but when he goes looking for this guru who's supposed to teach him how to sell life insurance, uh, some uh, British intelligence people from MI5 want him back in do another killing for them because he's done it before. Uh, the MI5 used to tap the SAS, do certain jobs off the radar for them. So they wanted Danny back because he was supposed to be 
or was the best of the best. So while he's trying to um, find a new trade, uh, British intelligence are trying to haul him back in and grab his family and everything else until on one morning he's sitting there in this room looking out at the target with a sniper rifle in his hands and uh, uh, people with their pistols pointed to an individual, a lady behind him whom he happens to love. Uh, so uh, I've kind of put that in the back cover to make people realize that there is a, an end game here in this, and it's not selling life insurance. Of course, he determines uh, life insurance is almost impossible, I guess, for a man who thinks the way he thinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Actually, the secondary character in the book, a guy called C.C. Courtney, whom uh, the locals say, and this is, this is where the plot has moved to Ireland, Sligo in Ireland, a uh, beautiful part of the country. That, uh, William Butler Yeats came from there, and there's all sorts of beautiful scenery. So this guy, the secondary character in the book, uh, who looks like Liam, Liam Neeson, apparently, according to the locals. He's trying to uh, deprogram Danny from the violence and get him to kind of shed the violence as it, as it is from his life, and he's struggling a little bit. And at the same time, these British intelligence guys are coming along. So the question is, will he deprogram him too soon, or can he still operate as a special forces guy? Well, it sounds like somewhere in the book he goes back to doing one more of what would you call it one more mission right one more mission yeah <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, this guy cc they probably make it uh like impossible to turn down yeah that, that, that that's right there's a nice there's a nice it's a pretty fast pace it eases down here and there but that's good um the locations change between england and ireland and there's a little map in the front there to help people figure out where they are and um I think it's quite an unusual book, actually. I mean, the, the, the different layers in there make it, and the location, of course, make it quite an unusual book. I, I have a strange feeling it's going to go all the way, actually. But that's just me. <laughs> Maybe it's my Irish psychic nature. I'm kind of prophesying that. Well, it must have been a, a great challenge to do all the research behind, especially the, the weapons and also this special forces mindset. Yeah, they, I, I know the... Uh, the, the weapons are a big thing because, you know, people reading this, some of them are special forces gurus and weapons gurus, and they can take a hold in what you're doing right away. So I spent a lot of time on that. I think I've got it pretty right. The mindset of special forces, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that I, I really appreciate the sacrifice that your military guys do and people up in Canada, and, and I'll never forget how what a wonderful job they do and their families waiting at home. But special forces go even a little further because they're called out at a moment's notice. There's no standard uh, postings that could be anywhere in the world, and they're not allowed to tell their families. When they come home, they can't tell them where they've been. And, and uh, they actually set up their mates, their buddies, become a second family, actually. And that's the big problem. Most of them end up divorced. The real family is in special forces. They come home on the weekend, and they can't wait to get back to the action, the adrenal fix their buddies, and so on. So it, it, it's tough being special forces. I think I really got into their mindset. I really did. And, and also, you had some uh, very uh, violent, unarmed cam combat sequences. Yeah, well, when I was, when I was a young man, I, I traveled around Australia in, in a boxing and wrestling troupe for nearly three years, taking on all comers. I was a middleweight on, on, on the lineup board. There was no heavyweight, so I had to fight everybody, heavyweights and everybody. 
and I did that for three years, and and uh, um, I lived and breathed and tasted. And then I got out of there and went up to Canada, and the recruiting sergeant looked at me and listened to my story and said, how do we need you in the military police? So for the next six years, I was clearing out bars of drunken Canadians. <laughs> oh, gee. They weren't all drunken Canadians. They were great guys, but I'm just saying that in the military police in Canada, you don't carry a club, you don't carry a weapon, uh, so you have to be trained in unarmed combat. And uh, when we were in Germany, we'd come up to a, a, a bar where there was problems, and the American military police would be there with their 45s and clubs and handcuffs, and we'd kind of stroll up with their hands in our pockets and say, well, come on, guys, we'll just stroll in. And we'd stroll into these drunken Canadians and kick their butts and talk to them, and quite often they'd just walk out of there, you know, because they knew we were pretty mean, mean guys when we got stirred up. So, yeah, I've got put it behind me, but uh, I was pretty good at the hard stuff myself. Not anymore. I just write about it now. Very realistically. <laughs> yeah, very realistically, yeah. Well, <laughs> now, well, tell if, us... I, if I could last one minute, I could sure. do a lot of damage. You'll listen to it that way. <laughs> tell us about neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, as it's called. NLP. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's a facet of psychology, if you like, and... Um, it's it's kind of how the how how the brain works and how you code experiences and how you can extract that experience again. But in the book, in the book, C.C. Um, Courtney, the number two character, uses NLP techniques to help Danny actually get rid of the violence in his life. And Danny said, "Well, hell, I've been in special forces, loads of violence." He said, "No, it's not that. The violence comes from you, back in you, sometime in your past." And it's true, Danny had a bad time with his stepfather and got beaten up, and his mother got beaten up. And really, that's when a spurt of violence came into him. You know, he, he just used the military as a vehicle to express his violence. So C.C. Uh, Courtney used NLP to help Danny go back and kind of, if you like, get rid of that stuff and, and change him. Uh, it's very powerful stuff, actually. I, use it, I used to use it when I did some coaching with people who had baggage in their lives. We all have it, but some of it needs to get rid of, you know. And this Courtney, uh, Clive Courtney is known as CC. He uh, has some other successes that are characters in, in your book as well. Yeah, there's a beautiful Irish nurse there that kind of, I mean, Danny's in the process of divorce because his wife says, get out or else. So he gets out and she divorces him anyway. Um, and he meets this beguiling Irish nurse that he kind of falls for. She's the one sitting in the chair kind of on the fatal morning with a couple of weapons on her head, and he's got to shoot this, uh, his target, or she gets it. Um, so, yeah, he's one of the characters he runs into. He's also uh, got a buddy in the, in the regiment. This is Danny Quigley called Scotty, who's a short, whipcord guy like a lot of special forces, and uh, he's got a bullet head that he uses with devastating effect. Uh, so he's in there, too. Another character is the uh, Director General of MI5, who's a lady, uh, Rebecca Fullerton Smiles, and she's quite a character in her own right, and she's right with them, right at the end, when they're coming up against this uh, kind of rogue MI5 agent. She's right there with a shotgun, right with them, shoulder to shoulder, when it comes down to the wire, and she's, she's quite a lady, actually. Well, does he ever sell life insurance? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> 
Actually, I, I've already written the sequel to it, and you start selling life insurance <laughs> in the sequel to it. But I'll t- talk about that, that at another time, I guess. That's for sure. Well, it sounds like a very exciting, fast-moving, uh, lots of twists and turns, and uh, a lot of mind games here. Yeah, there was a lot of mind games, and, and uh, as, as I say, I, because there's so many kind of, I wouldn't say digressions, but as it's going along, Danny's having flashbacks to previous missions he's had in the SAS. You know, he's, right. he's flying over to Ireland, and as he's doing so, his mind is idly going back to some other missions he did. So during the course of the book, there's flashbacks to some special operations stuff, which is pretty fast-moving as well. We never let people relax for too long during the book. You know, we, we, we're always in the middle of some sort of action. Russ, tell us how to get your book. Well, you have to, at this point in time, either tap into iUniverse.com. That's i, small i, universe.com. Or it's on uh, Amazon.com. The name, obviously, is the Quigley Alchemy. And obviously, my name is Russ McDevitt. It should be available through your local bookstore. They, they should have access to it, whatever your bookstore is. Uh, sure, anyone can order it. Yeah, Noble Lands, Chapters in Canada, right. Indigo. Um, they would just have to order it through there. But, uh, yeah, it would be accessible. And it looks good. The book looks absolutely fantastic. I mean, I'm saying that myself, but I'm so pleased with the front. The front kind of epitomizes what it's all about. It's, it's all about... Uh, picking up a book, getting lost on it, losing yourself, uh, it's a total switch off, and um, it's got a good ending as well. There's a happy ending in it. Well, it sounds like a movie. We kill a lot of guys in it, but it's a happy ending. (laughs) It's a happy ending, yes, with a trail of bodies. (laughs) A trail of bodies. They they deserve it, though. Yeah, of course they do. That's right. That's great. I think actually... Get get rid of the bad guys then anyway, right? I think some of your XGIs might appreciate it because Danny's getting these stupid questions, interview questions, you know, when he tries to go get jobs. Like, uh, um, tell us about some of you. Tell us about, tell us about an interaction with an individual that you did with success. And <laughs> Danny was thinking of, uh, well, I killed someone at 500 yards in Basler with a sniper rifle, but he said, I, I just can't say that. So he said, well, I, uh, I terminated someone uh, uh, who was... Uh, contravening safety rules, and I did it very effectively. And the guy said, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds great, yeah. <laughs> so well, the, these XGIs have a hell of a job when they, when they say, well, what have, you, what have you got going for you in terms of getting a job at, uh, at um, Walmart or some of these damn places, you know? Well, Russ, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Yeah. I probably talked too much, but hell, I'm not. Not at all. We really enjoyed it. Okay. That was E.J. Russ McDivitt. He is all the way from Ireland. All the way from Ireland. He is the author of his book, The Quigley Alchemy. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.